Good morning, church. Well, as Pastor John said, it is, uh, it is only uh, very rarely that you get to preach in front of a rocket and an astronaut, so I can confidently say this morning that my bucket list has gotten shorter. Um, <clears throat> no, it's always a privilege and an honor to speak and to proclaim God's word, so I'm excited to be here this morning. Uh, go ahead and open in your Bibles with me to uh, Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, chapter 4. Uh, my name is Andrew Hardiman. I'm a deacon, and I've been a deacon here for the last two years. I work in the high school youth group, the First Impressions Ministry, and I had a chance for a, a couple months to lead one of the Connect discipleship groups here at Hannaford. Um, after almost four years uh, serving in this body of Christ with you, uh, I want to tell you this morning that God is, is moving our family back to Alabama, um, where we're from. Some of you already know this, and some of you may not, but we've lived in Montana for the last seven years. Montana holds a very, very special place in our hearts, and we're always going to cherish these years at Hannaford. Uh, it's been such an important and a, a time of growth a time of growth for me and my family. I want to specifically uh, thank Pastor John. Um, if you don't know it, I'm sure most of you do. I certainly know it, but church, we have a great pastor. I'm so thankful for John and his ministry. And really, I stand before you today as a testimony and an offering of his ministry faithfulness for his pastorly care, for providing a safe place for me and my family to come four years ago in a, in a tough time in our lives. You know, we were, I won't get into a lot of the details, but we were wounded and broken in many ways. And, and I came and I, I still remember sitting down with John in his office and he listened and he counseled me and he guided our family <clears throat> through that hard season. And John, for that, I'll, I'm going to be eternally grateful. Uh, so Ephesians chapter 4, I want to quickly lay some groundwork for why I chose this topic and this passage. As you saw from that sort of introduction video, our topic this morning is God's calling on the life of the believer. Now, when I use the word calling, uh, in a Christian, in a spiritual context, you've probably heard that word used numerous times, but it can mean some slightly different things, so let's define exactly what we're talking about this morning. By, by the context of calling, I mean to discuss a sense of God's call and his missional activity in our lives, the advancement of his kingdom that I believe that's in play here in the letter to the church at Ephesus. There's another sense of calling in which we're, we're all called to know God and to get to know him on a personal relationship level, that call to salvation. That, that's something slightly different than what we're going to focus on this morning. But I want to focus on that idea of missional call. In my own personal testimony and ministry, calling has played an integral role. 2007 was a year that really reshaped and refocused my life from a spiritual perspective. Uh, it was a great year because it was the year that I met my wife, Marisa. And so 
uh, there were just a lot, I was in college, there were a lot of changes going on in my life, but I'll never forget that summer, um, I was at, I was very heavily involved in campus ministry, I had a church home in the college town that I went to, and then I had my home church back home, and and three straight uh, messages, two consecutive Sundays, and then a Tuesday night at the campus ministry, all three of those times I heard God's call to Isaiah in Isaiah 6 preached three straight times. And I'm here to tell you today, there was no sugarcoating it. There was no mistaken, like God is doing something in my life. Something is changing. He's preparing me for something. He's, he's wanting to grow something in me. And so it, it was a matter of weeks and months of praying, getting together with friends and discussing you know, what does ministry look like for Andrew Hardiman, and where should I go, and what should I do, and, and how do I identify this call, how do I let it play out in my life? There, was, there were so many questions, but I ended up getting answers. And so, even several years later now, my understanding of calling has deepened and developed in these four years at Hannaford. You see, I thought I'd been through seminary, I'd got a degree, I was learned, I had an education, I learned how to preach, I did all these things, I had done ministry for years, and I kind of thought I had it figured out. See, I thought I needed ministry as a title, I needed it as a vocation in order to be obeying that call that I received at the age of 21. So when I lost position, I felt sort of strange and out of place and I didn't know where to turn. Most of all, I had this great lack of desire to, to really ever re-enter vocational ministry, and that scared me to death. It scared me. But what I've learned in the last four years and what God is continuing to teach me today is that ministry and obedience to calling, they don't depend on any title, not one at all. It's simply a mentality of plugging in and serving God right where you're at in your neighborhood, in your family, in your work. That's what it means to be obedient to God's calling. See, there is this idea of specific ministry vocational calling, yet are some people called to preach or some people not called to preach? Absolutely. But there's this more general sense of calling that I think we as the church have, in a lot of instances, failed to heed or failed to identify in our lives. And it, it's that, that that God's been teaching me over these last few, few years is it, you don't need a title. You don't need a specific role. You just need to get your hands dirty in ministry. You just need to get busy and get with it. And um, so ask what you can do. Look for potential disciples at work, in your neighborhood, in your family, in your friends group, in Wherever you're at, wherever you're doing life, look for people that you can do ministry alongside, that you can teach, and that you can be a spiritual father to. And look for men that are more advanced in years, that have more ministry experience, that you can be a spiritual son or daughter to. So it's with this sort of background in mind, it's my conviction that as the church in America today, we find ourselves in a very very tough place, maybe even a place of crisis. <clears throat> Let me explain what I mean by that. I believe that in a previous generation, 
Not too long ago, the church held a position of influence in our culture, but now we've mostly lost that influence. We've not obeyed our calling. And, and that's for two, two primary reasons. Number one, I think many believers don't understand their call. They haven't read the scriptures and identified what God says, what Jesus said to the disciples in Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples. You see, when we look at our churches today and people are leaving and, 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 and running in different directions and not focusing and prioritizing their spiritual life, it's because we've dropped the ball. It's because we've failed to prioritize and failed to understand what it means to be called. So secondly, the vast majority of believers that do understand that there is a call, they haven't prioritized it. We sit on the sidelines waiting for somebody else to pick up our slack. We figure, I don't have the time or energy because I'm invested elsewhere. Somebody else will get to it at some point, and that is not the right attitude for us to have. We want to maintain this sense of bumper sticker Christianity. We want on our trucks and our vans the cool slogans made up of mostly bad theology and this image to the world that we're in the club. And that's all we want. But our lives, when they're on display, they paint a different picture of our priorities, right? So as I shared, we're moving. So obviously that's involved a lot of change at home and in our lives. So really over the last three, four months, we, my wife and I have been hunting for jobs and we've secured those. And now we're under contract with our house, and so we've sold, we're in the process of packing and moving, and, and life is just pretty crazy. But it, it's a good season, and God has been, it has been very gracious in all this. But this process of selling a, a house, I've never done it before, and so it's been very interesting at certain phases, the things that, that go on. And so you can share and probably identify with these feelings if you've ever been through this, but a few weeks ago we had a photographer come in and take pictures of our house. And so the days leading up to that is very stressful, and you're trying to get everything put away and stored and clear the countertops and clean up all the kids' toys and the messes. And so the photographer comes in that day and he takes all these pictures and our realtor sends us the pictures and I'm like, whoa, have we lived in that house the last seven years? I mean, seriously, the, the pictures were phenomenal, but it simply wasn't a picture of reality. <laughs> It, I was like, whoa, that is a super cool house. Not that, we, not that we don't love our house, but I was just, I was blown away at these photographs. And so I, I say all that to share with you that it painted this picture that wasn't really real. Um, and, and so it, it, it tidied everything up and cleaned everything up and it's sort of like social media does right we only put the things out there that we want people to see and we we don't want to see we don't want them to see everything else over here in the corner that makes us not look good so with all that as a backdrop let's read Ephesians chapter 4 the apostle writes to the church at Ephesus therefore I the prisoner of the Lord implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, 
with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So our passage this morning Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, it's right at the pivot point of this letter that Paul's writing to the church at Ephesus. The word therefore, I know Pastor John does this every time he speaks and comes across the word, but we always have to ask, what is it there for? And so the word therefore is a clear indicator here that there's a shift of content going on in this letter. And like many of his other letters, especially circular, circular letters, excuse me, that were written to various churches, Paul follows a clear rhetorical pattern in his argument. And it goes something like this. Instruction, then exhortation. Doctrine, then duty. What God has done, what we must now do in response. Identity in Christ, who you are living for Christ, who you should now be. That's the picture. That's the picture that Ephesians follows. And so the first three chapters are this, is this great theological document of the realities that we have and how Christ has changed our lot. In the preceding verses, Paul only gave one command, and that was in, back in chapter 2, verse 11, when he asked the church to remember their prior condition. It's not exactly a strong command even. He's spending all of his time at the beginning of this letter laying a foundation which should then spur them on to works and godliness. So let's just quickly review. In chapter 1, verse 4, he says, I chose them before the foundation of the world that they might be holy. In 1.5, he adopted them as sons. In 1.7, he brought redemption and forgiveness from sin. In 1.13, he sealed them with the Holy Spirit. In 2.5, he made us alive with Christ while we were dead in sin. In 2.6, he raised us and sat us with him who's in the heavenly places. In 2.10, he made us his workmanship. In 2.14, he's our peace and he broke down the barrier wall, of the, div the barrier of the dividing wall of hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles. In chapter 2, verse 19, he made us fellow citizens with the saints and part of God's household. In 2.20, he's the cornerstone of the church in whom the building being fitted together is growing to a temple in the Lord. These truths of the gospel, how, how God has changed our life, brought us from death into life, that's what gives therefore its weight. That's what gives therefore its true meaning. Because of our identity in Christ and what he's done for us, because he's sealed us, because he's redeemed us, because he's adopted us into our family, Paul says, because of that, live like this. It wouldn't make sense for him to just come and start writing this letter in chapter 4 without having laid the foundation of who we are in Christ. Without that identity, the rest of this is meaningless. Therefore is the basis of our calling. It's the reason that Paul says we are to walk. It is the reason that Paul identifies himself here as a prisoner 
of the Lord, which, by the way, is a transition from how he started the letter. If you look back at the beginning of Ephesians 1, there Paul identifies himself as an apostle of Christ. He's establishing credibility at that point to then say these are the truths that, are, that should be evident about who Jesus is and what he's done. But now he's shifting and he's saying, because all this is true, this is how I live my life as a prisoner of the Lord. Literally, Paul is writing this letter from a jail cell. His, his faith, his preaching has landed him in chains. And he writes this letter from less than ideal circumstances to a people who are probably distraught for him. But Paul views that prisonership, that, bond, that idea of being a bondservant, that is his identity in Christ. He is inextricably linked to Jesus. Certainly the reality of the Christian life and the appropriate response to the gospel is that we must all act on who we are. That's the transition that we see here. You, you gain a glimpse in chapter 1 through 3, this is who I am. This is who God says that I am. And now because of this, this is what I need to do. So the command in chapter 4, verse 1, where he says, I implore you, or I urge you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. That's the foundational command that the rest of this book is laid out upon. He, he'll, he'll go on to command the Ephesians to do so many other things, but it's all based on this concept in chapter 4, verse 1, that we walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. So that, that picture of walk, it's a journey, right? It's a, it's a way to get from point A to point B in these Ephesians. It's the simplest way that the most people would have identified with what he was talking about. It was the simplest mode of transportation to get from one town to another was to walk. And so the, the great, he implores this imagery, I think, because the greatest number of people can understand and identify with what he's talking about. So this morning, I've got three quick points that I want us to explore and flesh out as we identify our missional calling as the church. What does it mean to live faithfully in Christ? Firstly, our calling, as you'll see in your program, our calling is urgent. As I said, Paul identifies himself here as a prisoner of the Lord. He, he links himself with Jesus. He, he, he sees his own personal identif identity as so closely linked to Christ that that's how he wants to introduce himself in this section of Scripture to the church at Ephesus. So why, why would Paul add that here? Why would he interject a different identity, a different credibility as he's writing this section of the letter? I think it's because of Paul's personal hardship and his own experience in Christian ministry. We know that now he's in chains. We know that he's had a rough time of it. We know that just like this letter, he wrote other letters that, like we just studied in Colossians and also Philippians, the letter to um, Philemon about the slave Onesimus. All those letters, most scholars think those were written from prison. They're called the prison epistles, and most people accept that that's where Paul penned them from. But to be Christ's prisoner or Christ's bondservant was so interwoven in Paul's identity 
that he couldn't help to use it again here and to establish the importance and the urgency of this message that he wanted to convey. I want us to think briefly back over to Acts chapter 9 where we see the conversion of the Apostle Paul. It's very interesting that we know that he was on the road to Damascus and he had been persecuting Christians up to this point, murdering Christians for their faith. And we see such a dramatic shift so quickly there in Acts 9. And there's, there's just two verses that I want to read to you. So we know that Paul's blinded on the road and he's taken into Damascus and, he, and, and God comes to this man named Ananias and, and says, you need to go talk to Paul. And uh, he's, Acts 9.15 says, But the Lord said to him, being Ananias, Go, for he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight and got up and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. And this is the key verse. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. So Paul undergoes this drastic transformation. His life completely changes. And what does he do? Does he sit around and say, Hmm, I think I need to go through membership class. I need to sit under this other person and learn what Christianity is all about. No. It says... He started preaching. <laughs> he immediately went and started doing ministry, getting his hands dirty and teaching other people what he was still himself at this point learning. Now, yes, because Paul was a Jew, he knew the scriptures intimately. But at the same time, I don't think we're supposed to miss there the immediacy with which Paul shifted course, with which he changed direction and had a new um, driving force behind him. Paul knows that dilly-dallying around, wasting time, has grave repercussions for the advancement of the gospel. And so the nature of the message itself, the nature of the gospel, demands urgency. It demands that we be about this, and we don't put it in second place. Any, any other response is hypocrisy. Our calling is urgent. Secondly, our calling is consistent, and we see this from verse 2, where he says, The calling which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. So what do I mean by consistent? Well, these attributes listed here in verse 2 apply to each and every one of us. The you in verse 1 is a collective you. Now, I mean, it can point directly at me too, and it can point directly to you, but it's primarily intended to speak to the church as a whole in a collective sense, a plural sense, not just a singular one. I also say consistent because without exception, these character traits that are laid out perfectly reflect the character of Jesus himself. We see, we, and, and we should identify as we read this passage, man, this sounds like the fruit of the Spirit. Man, this sounds like Galatians 5. Um, that's what we're supposed to connect with here. Um, 
So the characteristics that we're given in verse 2 that flow out of our calling are firstly, humility, lowliness. So the knowledge of our high calling that Paul has just relayed to us in the first three chapters leads us to a disposition of lowliness. Think of, write down Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, the passage where it says that Jesus emptied himself and, and took on meekness and, and lowliness. Secondly, the characteristic of gentleness and meekness. I was reading, as I was preparing for this message, I, I read a sermon by John Piper, and he had these words to say about gentleness and meekness. He said, precisely because he has been granted to know God, the Christian man is a man of lowliness. He regards his knowledge as small and lowly because he has seen the omniscient God. He regards his strength as small and lowly because he has seen the omnipotent God. He regards his righteousness as small and lowly because he has seen the Holy One of Israel. And since the Christian is oriented on God and not man, he is not puffed up by any little superiority he may have over other human beings. What a strong statement. It's, it's, because, our, it's because of our encounter with God and these holy characteristics of God that helps us identify our own lowliness and our own um, relative unimportance. So indeed, it is our knowledge of the holy that rightly, or, rightly orients us. Lastly, in verse 2, it mentions patience as a characteristic. Really, those first two ideas of lowly, lowliness and meekness are prerequisites to patience. I've never met a haughty or a boastful person, person that was very patient. Um, and so... If, if we get to the patience part of this section, it's assumed that you've already got the lowliness and the meekness under control. Let's not miss what Paul is highlighting here. We are to walk in light of who we are in Christ, but there's grace, and that's, that's part of the picture. Because anybody who's done ministry for any period of time knows that we as the church, are, we're all imperfect people. It can be frustrating for me to work with certain people because our personalities aren't very similar. Our ideas of what is effective ministry might not be similar. We have different viewpoints on those things. But God gives us grace and patience for, for seasons like that. I guarantee you the leadership here, they don't always see eye to eye perfectly on everything that they want to plan or prepare. But there's a, there's a time for patience and grace in that process to let the Spirit lead. Thirdly, our calling is to unity. Unfortunately, if you've spent any time in any number of churches over your life, that's probably not the testimony that you can attest to all of the time. If I were to take a microphone and pass it around the audience today, I'm sure many of you could share quite tragic stories about discord in various congregations that you've served in or been, been a part of in some sense. And that's sad, and that it, it's a terrible thing, and, and I've experienced some of that myself. I don't really want to go down that depressing rabbit hole, so I'll find another one to chase instead. Um, so against my better judgment, I know a few weeks ago Pastor John shared an example 
um, uh, about golf, and he asked for a show of hands, like how many people play golf or are interested in golf, and it was like me and one other person. So this example, none of you probably care about this, but I'm going to share it anyways because I love golf, and it's, anyways, so uh, if, you, if you're a sports fan and you've been following the news lately, you might know that over the last 18 months or so, professional golf has undergone a significant fracture. And, and to explain it real briefly, what, what has happened is the professional tour here in the United States, a lot of the top players left and took nine-digit sums to go play in other parts of the world, basically in an exhibition. And so the best players are no longer playing together. The sport is fractured. And so the, two, the PGA Tour here in the United States took this hardline stance and said, anybody that leaves our tour, they're no longer going to be a member. They're not welcome to play in our events. They're going to be fined. They're going to be suspended indefinitely. There's no way that they can ever come back. And so players had to make the decision, am I going to go? Am I going to stay? And so some of them went and they took loads of money and some of them stayed loyal to the tour and said, you've been good to me. I want to stay and I want to play golf here. Well, now we come to Tuesday of this week and literally in the middle of the night, unbeknownst to anyone, even the greatest players in the world, I wake up and the headline on CNN says, Live Golf and PGA Tour have a merger. And I'm sure me and the other millions of golf fans in this country said, What? Where did that come from? And so a few people made this decision to basically renege on these bold promises that have been made. And so now there's there's going to... They don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but there's going to be a way back for these players to come back and play on the tour. And the players are angry about it. The fans are angry about it. Everybody's angry about it. And so why do I share that? It's utterly frustrating dealing with hypocrites. But let's face it, we've all been one at one point or another. The tour in this instance, I believe, was very hypocritical. They drew this hard line in the sand and said nobody can come back. But when it became in their financial interest to maybe take a different course of action, they quickly pivoted, they completely changed their mind, and they left some of the best players in the world out on an island standing up for something that, and then they ended up having the rug pulled out from under them. So it was Gandhi that once said, if it wasn't for Christians, I might be a Christian. Right? Have you ever heard, have you ever heard that before? And so for, for, for a lot of us, you know, we encounter people and it's like, man, I, I really don't like that person. They're hard to get along with. I struggle with them. And so a lot of people that really wrestle with getting involved in Christianity and being a part of a church, what keeps them on the sidelines, what keeps them at bay is dealing with people. But in, this, in the context of this section of Scripture, we're to preserve and maintain the unity of the Spirit. The work of Christ has already secured this unity through the bond of peace. And we just have to rest and rely on it, church. That bond of peace is what ties us together. 
Many of you may have a lot in common with me. Some of you may have little in common with me. But it's the bond that we share in the hope, the, the life that we have in Christ that's that important point of commonality that brings us each together here every Sunday. We as the church have to choose to let that bond be stronger and override any methods, opinions, any dissension that could arise within us. The fourth point is that unity is togetherness. And we see that in verses 4 through 6. Now without rereading it, we see... Um, we see two words that really pop off the page here in verses 4 through 6, and those words are one and all. So there's a oneness here that's repeated, and there's this concept of all. So as I just said, our bond, our bond is the triune God. He's the point of commonality. He's what each of us share. But then we also have this word all, there's the many, the different ones of us. We each have a different background, a different perspective, a different take, a different education. But we all find a common bond in the one faith, the one spirit, the one hope, the one baptism that this passage speaks of. That's what ties us together. We can rely on the fact that if you go to a third world country or a foreign country where you don't speak the language and you go there and you try to ask questions and order a meal at a restaurant and have a conversation with somebody and you don't have a clue what's going on, but you go into a place of worship there, you can bet that you will feel the Spirit of God in that place even though you don't understand a single lyric that's sung. Because it's bigger than those divisions. It's bigger than those differences between me and a person in, all, in, 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 a, in a different country somewhere. It's bigger than that. The gospel is bigger than that. So why is Godness, God's oneness so relevant? I believe it's because it's timeless and unchanging. There are billions of people, numerous people, groups, and civilizations around this world, but one God. And Hebrews tells us that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. We don't have to guess who God is. He's shown us. And specifically in this letter, Paul had just shown the Ephesians, this is the God you serve. This is the God who has saved you. This is the God who has transformed your life. It's our responsibility now to take that truth, to take that understanding, to, to rest in the gravity of it, and to thus live accordingly. I want us to see in closing that we're together with God and we're together with man. This picture of togetherness is of utmost importance for us to identify and to come to terms with. I've repeated over and over and over again that God's message and his mission in chapters 1 through 3 are abundantly clear. Paul had spilled his heart out to these people. And in an overflow of devotion, he's now pleading with them, walk. Walk in a manner worthy of what I've just said. Walk in a way that displays this great goodness of God to the world. Be consistent in it. Walk together with him. Get on board for an amazing adventure and follow God wherever it takes you. 
Paul uses in a separate letter to the church at Corinth, he uses the imagery of the spiritual body, right? It says that we are the body and Christ is the head. You know, the, the most fantastic part of that is that, think about it, we're irrevocably linked. We share the same brain, the same heart, the same fingers, the same hands, the same nervous system, the same circulation system, the same life as Jesus Christ. That's good news, church. That's good news. Tim Keller, who just passed away last week, he said this about this passage. He says, what makes you a Christian is not being nice or moral. It is having the life of God in you. Please do not insult the gospel by thinking of, a, by thinking of being a Christian as being nice, for it is being new. Think about that. Being a Christian is not being nice, it's being new. It's being transformed into the image and the likeness of God. So I say here at the end, we have to be together in conviction in your programs, and we have to be together on mission. You should be able to share in conviction the primary faith tenets that bond us all together. And if you can't say that, you're in the wrong place. You need to find a place of worship where you can stand in conviction with your brothers and sisters and do ministry alongside them. You need to be together in mission, accepting that you have to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, that that calling is high, that quite frankly it's unattainable without the grace of God and the Spirit of God driving you. I want to close this morning with a, with a quick story. Um, a pastor uh, that I've been fortunate enough to hear um, quite a few times uh, has actually written a book on calling. He's, pastor, he's pastored for many years, been a um, denominational leader for many years. Um, he's a president of a seminary. He's got the credentials, right? So he tells this story one of the last times I heard him speak about how much he loved baseball. And I'm like, what? You're, you're like a famous speaker, you're an author, why are you telling us how much you like baseball? And I, and I became... And I began to realize as he shared the story that he viewed baseball as an important part of his ministry as anything else in his life. And this is why. When he was president of a seminary, he, had all, he also had the chance to become chaplain for a major league baseball team. And when his kids were younger, he shared that he had had a chance to coach and umpire for them, and he, he just loved the game of baseball. When his time of chaplaincy with this team, he, uh, he got to know some of the umpires and would pray with them, started Bible studies with them. And as of five years ago, when I heard this story from the man, he shared that there was a revival going on in Major League Baseball with umpires that he had seen numerous people come to Christ, that it, it was just amazing the things that were happening across baseball because of his desire to just live life and be with people in ministry in that way. And he had every right to say, you know what, I'm too busy. 
I don't have time for this. I'm caught up in all these other areas of ministry. But the way he viewed calling was that it was his life. It was, it was such an integral part of who he was that it flowed into every area. And even though he's written books and pastored churches, it might be argued that his greatest legacy will be to, to Major League Baseball umpires and the impact that those Bible studies and those relationships that he built are having all across America. So let's pray. God, we thank you for today. We thank you for the chance to gather here and worship you. We thank you for the high calling that you place on our lives. Lord, I pray that we would be faithful to it and obedient that we would always be aware and realize that um, it's your spirit in our life that gives us the power uh, to speak and to change other lives, Lord. And I pray that we would just always keep that calling close and let it be a motivation to us in every season and every chapter. In Jesus' name, amen.